0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign up link or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always appreciated as well. In this week's show, we've got a jam-packed Episode for you today. In the first segment, I'm going to dive into the Texas storm and cover the extraordinary records that it broke. If you read the newsletter, this won't be a rehash of those points, although I'm going to be making some of the same ones. I was able to dig up some new records that I didn't have when I wrote the newsletter. In fact, it was just really the following day that I found this. So we're going to cover some of the just amazing records this storm had when it blew through the South. And then in the second segment, we're going to talk about the reemergence of Donald Trump this week as well as the villainization of Ron DeSantis in Florida, which is going to include a discussion of a fairly ridiculous NBC News hit piece that went against DeSantis this week. In the third segment, we'll do the normal COVID-19 update, going through all the numbers, and then in the light item segment, we're going to have an ode to saxophone solos from the 1980s. So we have a lot of ground to cover this week, so we're just going to jump right in as always. So as I mentioned, we're starting off with the Texas weather system. In the newsletter, I talked a lot about how the disaster in Texas, with all the power outages that they had, water issues and everything, that could mostly be explained by the fact that this was a historic storm of epic proportions. And I walked through some of the weather facts and figures to prove that point. And what I wanted for and didn't have for that piece was a full quantitative article that, that broke down exactly how many records were broken and I happen to come across one the very next day, so Texas obviously has some issues that it needs to clean up with regards to power, water, and those sorts of things, and most of it's going to come down to you know bringing insulation in for power generators and just revamping their entire infrastructure to ensure that it can withstand some extreme cold. However, this was a very extreme storm. It was literally the perfect storm of circumstances when you start factoring in all the various things that came into play with it. So it was a perfect storm for this area, and it was something that they just flat out had not seen in, frankly, 100 years. This is a very special storm that hit them. But first, hitting the records here, uh, and as a caveat, as I mentioned, these are all preliminary numbers we're going to wait here for a while for the weather service to officially finalize everything, but this is what we know so far these could be these numbers could be changed over time, so at least twenty four hundred that is two thousand and four hundred uh daily cold temperature records, including cold maximums and minimums, so the highs and lows here, were broken or tied at long term sites, and that's including about seventy five years worth of data in the United States from February 12th through the 16th. The cold snap peaked from February 14th through the 16th and that is where you've got the bulk of those records. So 2,400 different cold temperature records from highs to lows across this swath of the country. In the National Centers for Environmental Information, that's a division of NOAA, in their database, approximately 30% of available U.S. weather sites set cold maximum records, and about 20% set cold minimum records. So that's that means you've got highs and your lows there. So about a third of these places set max high records. And that is, you know, you're only getting up to barely above freezing in these places. Analyzed temperatures were about 40 to 50 degrees below average for a large portion of the Central and Southern Plains. At the peak of the cold, more than 5 million homes were without power, most of them in Texas, and more than 30 people have lost their lives. So that is a monster storm, a monster winter weather storm. And we usually don't think of winter weather storms in the same way that we do, say, a thunderstorm, tornadoes, and hurricanes, but we really should, especially when they're impacting areas of the world that are not used to them. So that is the kind of storm that we're dealing with here. It is literally historic in every way. So when you've got you know nearly a third of your weather sites posting some kind of record here, that is insane. And We're really only going back here since when we've had reliable records, and for most of these places, that's only going to go to the late 1880s at best. Uh, Sometimes it's only about 75 years, but still, that is a lot of years and a lot of information. So here here are some of the records that this storm broke and and what what it was breaking in the process. So uh, some of the records from the February 15th and 16th include... Uh, Hibbing slash Chisel Minnesota, on February fifteenth, they set a record where they only got up to negative thirty-eight degrees Fahrenheit. The previous record was negative twenty-eight, so ten degrees in a place like Minnesota—that is incredible. And that record, negative twenty-eight, was set in nineteen thirty-nine, and they hit negative thirty-eight on this one. So that—that's a—that's a record, nearly a hundred-year-old record. The next one was in Valentine, Nebraska. They set a record of negative 33 degrees. The previous record on that was negative 28, so five-degree difference there. That was set in 2007. Uh, North Platte, Nebraska, they set a record of negative 29. The previous record was negative 23 from 1881. Uh, you kind of get the, the feel here. Lincoln, Nebraska, they set a record of negative 31. Their previous record was only negative 18 from 1978. Uh, Hastings, Nebraska, on February 16th, they went down to negative 30. Their previous record was negative 13 from 1979. And then Sioux City, Iowa, theirs was negative 28 on the 16th. Their previous record was negative 25 from 1936. So a lot of these places, it wasn't just Texas, a lot of these, you know, plains, and even up into Minnesota, they were setting records. It wasn't just the Deep South. Everywhere this storm hit, it was setting some kind of records. At one point, 73% of the continental United States was covered in snow as of midnight February 16th, making it the greatest extent on record. And there, that database only goes back to Tuesday of 2003, but that is a record going back then, so that's about 18 years worth of information there, 17 to 18, depending on how when they started that database. So, on February 14th, the U.S. saw the largest area covered by winter storm warnings in the lower 48, so the continental United States, since 2005. The warning area covered nearly 1 million square miles. It was it was exactly 994,193. So nearly a million square miles were covered by winter storm warnings, and that beat the previous high for that, which was over 15 years ago, which was 750,000 square miles from on February 1st, 2011. So, and you know, nearly a million square miles of the United States was covered in winter storm warnings. You had all these records broken all across the across the board. So this was a monster storm. This was a huge winter storm. And it's the likes of which we haven't seen in a very long time, in which places like Texas and the Deep South really aren't used to seeing. This was setting records across the board. And, you know, you know, I, I saw especially people who are from New York or just from the North in general, some of them were saying, well, why couldn't you guys deal with this? It wasn't a ton of snow. And, and just the fact is, we can't deal with any snow. I mean, if you remember... A little over seven years ago, there was the Snowmageddon storm. It hit Atlanta, Georgia. And there were people stranded on the interstates. They couldn't leave their houses. And that was two inches of snow. And it brought, you know, it brought one of the largest and most thriving cities in both America and the South in general to a grinding halt. And what happened in Atlanta as a city happened to Texas as an entire state, Whole state gets hit. This wasn't just a specific city, which is what happens when you sometimes when you see some of these northern places where it hits a city. This was an entire state was ground to a halt in the form of Texas. Now that uh, that that 2014 event in in Atlanta, that was also triggered by a polar vortex wobble, uh, which brought a plunge of deeply cold air to the south. Uh, A few years later, Atlanta got hit by another ice storm. I know, because I was sitting in an airport in Richmond, Virginia, waiting for my flight to be able to leave for a layover in Atlanta. And Atlanta was just struggling to de-ice both the runways and the planes. I actually remember that day pretty vividly, because that was also the same day Mitt Romney gave his speech against Trump during the 2016 primaries. Uh, he did it at some university that I forget, but I remember sitting there watching him in a, in a restaurant. Um, I was sitting there eating a cob salad and some really ridiculously large onion rings that were fried just perfectly. You know, some people, they do Diet Coke and an unhealthy meal. I do a salad and onion rings. So that's how I roll on that front. So if you really want to do some reading on larger weather patterns of play, and I could go into it, but I, there's a lot more to cover in today's show, so I don't want to go into this too much, uh, make sure to check out pieces that talk about the confluence of different weather patterns. In this specific one, you want to look at pieces that talk about the polar vortex La Nina, and the quasi biennial Oscillation, or the QBO. Uh, All three of those were in play here, and one led into the other, and so it just sort of caused the perfect storm of sorts here that hit. So I'm going to link to a piece in the show notes. You can check out the talk about it. It was, it predicted basically what happened here in February, and it was written in September of 2020, right as the polar uh, vortex was forming over the Arctic Circle. And so it was looking at these weather patterns and saying, okay, well, this is about what we think is going to happen. So that is the Texas weather situation in a nutshell. I know I have some listeners out there. I hope you guys are doing all right and you recover, get all your power back, uh, and just hope everybody is all right. So I'm going to take a quick break right here, and then when I come back, we'll get into Trump's return and the vilification of Ron DeSantis in Florida. So this past week marked the, quote, return of Donald Trump to the political scene. He gave multiple interviews, mostly to talk about the death of conservative talk radio legend Rush Limbaugh, and also various things relating to the Republican field and impeachment. And I say return in quotation marks because this was a planned press push by the former president. Uh, You know, this is after the impeachment trial is over, so it's safe for him to stick his head above uh, the, the stick his, bring his head up above from the sand you know see what's happening see what he can do see what trouble he can get into he also launched into a tirade against senate minority leader mitch mcconnell he was blaming mcconnell for just a swath of different things claiming that mcconnell only existed because trump pushed his campaign over the top and you know like most things says on these kinds of points that's just not a word of it's true it just sounds good to him So, and also, frankly, just what Trump is saying on these points, and what he's saying in general, none of it's it's really relevant, none of it's true, for starters, and just flat out, none of it's relevant, and he has to find a way, obviously, to keep himself in the public eye, to some extent, he's not on Twitter, he's not on Facebook, and so without his social media presence, he can't have that daily presence in everybody's lives, which is what he really wants, he really wants that, but he's being denied that right now. Frankly, if he wants to run again in the future, that is probably for the best. But two data points came out this week on the 2024 election and the future of the Republican Party. Uh, first, you had Daily Co's elections. They're a far-left election site I follow because they crank out some of the best, albeit biased, but still some of the best information on elections anywhere in the United States. Literally from dogcatcher all the way up to president. They cover it all. And so they put out a map showing where Trump and Biden won according to congressional districts, so your representatives in Congress. Uh, If you look at the election this way, Joe Biden carried 224 congressional seats and Donald Trump won 211 congressional seats. Only seven Democrats hold seats where Trump won and nine Republicans hold districts where Biden won. So as a total between both parties here, you only have 16 crossover districts. And that is astounding, because by historical standards, that is incredibly low. Uh, Just as for some other examples here, after the 2016 elections where Republicans held the White House, Senate, and the House, there were 35 crossover districts, where you had Republicans winning in a Hillary district or Democrats winning in a Trump district. Uh, After the 2008 elections, which was a wave election for Democrats, they won up and down the ballots. Uh, Democrats had massive majorities everywhere. They had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate alone. So they had massive majorities. Even with that, there were still 83 crossover districts where you had Republicans and Democratic districts and vice versa. So to only have 16 crossover districts, that signals that we are in a very polarizing era. The party lines are drawn very tight, and people are holding that party line regardless of who was on the ticket. It's not about Biden. It's not about Trump. It's about Democrats versus Republicans, and people are voting accordingly. Uh, people like saying, you know, Biden won by billions of votes if you look at the popular vote. But in reality, depending on which states you pick, Republicans were somewhere between forty-five to 90,000 votes away from holding all three branches of government again. So I think the offic- if you wanted Republicans in charge of everything, you needed to switch about 90,000 votes. If you just want the White House with Trump winning, you need about 45,000 votes to change. But just being 90,000 votes away from flipping those things, and then you have the Republicans in control of the House, the Senate, and and the presidency, uh, That that is astounding. And even with Biden winning, Republicans still won seats in the House, making it very likely that they're going to retake the House in 2018. And if you just include the sheer inertia they're going to get from redistricting, where they're going to draw some of these districts far more friendly for themselves, that almost guarantees that you're going to see them retake the House. And of course, there's the Democrats could hold in 2022 here, but that's very unlikely. So, if Trump decides to run again in 2024... Just they're just without a question here. He is the prohibitive favorite to win the Republican primaries. You can throw out his age, you can throw out any other factor. Polls right now are showing him sitting comfortably at around fifty-five percent right now, which is an improvement from where he was at 45%, and that was just after the aftermath of January sixth. And but that 55% number is still down from around the 60 to 65% range that where he was sitting right after the election. So he's seen some bounce back here. I suspect he will improve a little bit more, but he is still the prohibited favorite. If he says he's going to run again, he wipes the field out. Patrick Raffini of Echelon Insights, that's a Republican pollster and strategist. His firm puts out a really good and accurate data set on this type of stuff. He tested both the field with and without Trump. And so if you have Trump in the field, he wins walking away. It doesn't really matter who else is there. If you take Trump away and say he doesn't run for one reason or another, that's where things get a little bit more interesting. So overall, in a field without Trump, Mike Pence is the leader with 21% of the vote. The overall leader here is 26% of respondents are just flat out unsure who they would pick. So, you know, that's a lot of people who don't know. But Mike Pence is the overall leader at 21 percent. Ted Cruz is in second with 10 percent. In third place is Ron DeSantis of Florida with 8 percent. Donald Trump Jr. also has 8 percent with 4 percent. He's in fourth place with 8 percent, sorry. And his stock is dropping a little bit from earlier test polls on this, where he had double digits. So he has fallen back a little bit. Uh, Nikki Haley is in fifth with six percent. Mitt Romney has four percent. And then there's three people who have two percent, and that is Dan Crenshaw, Ben Sass, and Christy Gnome. And then there's a passel of one percenters that include Tom Cotton, Larry Hogan, John Kasich, Rand Paul, and Mike Pompeo. And they round out the bottom of that list. If I were buying stock in any of these names, and I was guaranteed that Trump wasn't running for one reason or another. So if Trump runs, I would pick him. He's going to win the primaries. Someone would have to prove that they can beat him, and I don't know that anyone can, or really, frankly, I don't know that anyone would want to challenge him in the primaries, because that's the secondary problem here. You could have somebody like Ted Cruz try again, but I just think because Ted Cruz's base is already within the Trump base, it's going to be hard to move him for for him to do anything else. I just don't think he has a base if Trump is there. So if I were buying stock again and I was guaranteed Trump wasn't running, I'd buy up all the stock I could on two names. And that'd be Ron DeSantis and Tom Cotton. And if I could buy shorts on certain names, betting on them to fail, I would short Mike Pence, Ted Cruz, Mitt Romney, and Nikki Haley. I don't think either of them is gonna make it. I'm not even sure like I don't even think Mitt is gonna run. I don't think Nikki Haley is going to make it to Iowa, let alone make it through the primary. So, if if Trump isn't running, I don't. The reason I would short Pence is I don't see Trump supporting Pence. Trump is more likely to play the field and look for people to kiss his ring. Ron DeSantis and Tom Cotton, however, they've got some real power from 2020 and 20 the 2021 they've had so far. Uh, Cotton pushed Trump to do the first travel ban in January, dealing with China. He's been right multiple times over on the pandemic, China, the riots, and more. He's already ticked off the New York Times. People got fired over his his editorial in the New York Times over the summer where he told people that they needed to have the troops called in in some of these cities. He said it again after January 6th, so he's kind of consistent on this point. And then you have Ron DeSantis, who's been running... Florida during this entire pandemic and has done an incredible job on that one, on that front. And personally, I would put Tom Cotton as my number one overall here, who I like the most. And that's just, and the only reason I give him that edge is because I really like him on some foreign policy stuff. But on domestic stuff, he and DeSantis are 1A, 1B for me. And I would not be unhappy if either of them happened to win this. The interesting thing about DeSantis, though, I'm going to focus on him here, is because he is uniquely hated among the national media. I mean, just absolutely hated. National journalists absolutely loathe DeSantis. And I'll give you an example. And this is also going to help us shift into this, the next segment, talking about the coronavirus. So, NBC News ran an actual news story. This is not an opinion article. This is not a column This is a news story. They ran it on DeSantis and his vaccination rollout plan. And they included what they think are their problems with that vaccination uh, rollout. Now, I could sit here and I could describe this for you, but you really would not believe me if I described this for you. This is not the Onion. This is not the Babylon Bee. So I'm just going to pull this up. I'm going to read some sections off of this. I'll include a link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out. So here it is. This is what NBC News had to say. Florida's governor was slow to respond to the pandemic, and his COVID-19 vaccine distribution plan has been marked by chaos. But critics say he's been quick to recognize the political gold in those precious doses. Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, ignored federal guidelines that prioritized getting senior citizens, one of Florida's most potent voting blocks, vaccinated first. When Holocaust survivors and Cuban survivors of the Bay of Pigs debacle, both revered members of two other key Florida voting blocs, got their first shot, DeSantis made sure he was right there for the news conferences. And now the governor stands accused of using the COVID-19 vaccine to reward powerful political supporters and developers by setting up pop-up vaccination sites in planned communities they developed and where GOP voters predominate. Responding to recent criticism from both Republican and Democrats in Manatee and Charlotte counties, both south of Tampa, where one of the pop-up sites was set up last week and another began dispensing doses on Wednesday, DeSantis said local lawmakers should be more grateful. Quote, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't be complaining, the governor said. I'd be thankful we were able to do it. DeSantis said his seniors-first strategy zeroes in on retirement communities that are willing to help organize vaccination events and that Manatee County County has trailed other parts of the state in getting needles into arms of residents over ages 65 and older. The governor said the state has set up similar sites at the Kings Point community in Palm Beach County, Sun City Center in Hillsborough County, and the village's retirement community northwest of Orlando. Quote, if Manatee County doesn't like us doing this, we're totally fine p- with putting this in counties that want it, he said. There was no response from the DeSantis administration when NBC News reached out for comment. But on Thursday, the governor was in Largo in the Pinellas County at another hurriedly arranged pop-up vaccination operation. There, DeSantis boasted about vaccinating the 2 millionth senior citizen in Florida, a 94-year-old Korean War veteran named Vern Cummings, whose vaccination was broadcast live on Fox News earlier u s Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a South Florida Democrat, blasted DeSantis for threatening Manatee County quote, to threaten that he would pull vaccines if people don't like the way the distribution system works is, is working is both vile and shows the callous indifference he has in how the vaccine has been handled. She said on Wednesday, but there is little to stop DeSantis from distributing the vaccines any way he wants in December. The federal Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released recommendations on who should be getting vaccinated first. But the Trump administration essentially left the distribution of doses up to the governors, said Philip J. Palin, a veteran government consultant who specializes in delivering supplies to survivors of catastrophes. This allowed Desantis to put senior citizens in the same category as frontline healthcare workers, and the result was chaos. When some counties began offering shots on a first-come, first-served basis, now this thing, this piece goes on, and they start talking about who is getting, who which seniors are getting this, why they're, why this piece thinks they're getting it, and. It says that these seniors are, quote, jumping the line to get the vaccine ahead of others. Like, it's a bad thing. So, let's be clear here. NBC News is running a news piece, first saying that prioritizing seniors is letting them jump the line over others. And the examples they use of these bad seniors here is that DeSantis is letting the vaccine go to Holocaust survivors... People who survived the Bay of Pigs fiasco under the Kennedy administration, and Korean War veterans. These are our group, this is our, you know, in law we could talk about a parade of horribles, which is, you know, this long list of all these awful things. This is NBC News' Parade of Horribles. Holocaust survivors, Cubans who survived the Bay of Pigs fiasco, and Korean War veterans. They also don't seem to like that DeSantis is holding press conferences about these vaccines and claiming victory about getting 2 million seniors vaccinated, which, you know, if they've got issues with that, I'd really like for them to drift north to New York and tell me why exactly Andrew Cuomo is getting an Emmy for his, you know, quote-unquote work up there, whatever he has been doing. The other implication here, which is mind-numbingly stupid, is that the federal guidelines are correct and that seniors should not be targeted, which is utter nonsense. Every state in the United States has sought to target healthcare workers and seniors to some extent or another because these are the groups, particularly seniors, who are at most risk of dying from COVID-19. So what DeSantis' team is doing here is that they're looking at areas where vaccinations are lagging behind the rest of the state, and then they're running a special campaign in there, bringing in a pop-up shop, bringing in something where they can do a media hit to get vaccinations into the news and into people's minds to go get them. They're trying to convince people to go out and get vaccinated, so they're running these you know these ad campaign blitzes, basically, and apparently this is a no-no. And and you know you at the in the top of the piece they say you know Republican and Democratic sources are saying this. Well, the only Democratic source they list here, and they don't really list any notable Republicans, but this is all coming from former DNC head Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the same woman who got kicked out of her leadership position because she helped rig. The primaries in favor of Hillary Clinton. So that's who we're talking about here. NBC News is running a full on hit, quoting everything that Schultz is saying as fact. So let's just break down the numbers here, which this piece conveniently ignores to make its narrative. It doesn't bring up all the numbers of the state, even though we have them. So the most up-to-date numbers show that Florida has administered nearly 4.4 million vaccination doses, around 2 million of which are for seniors, which means that they've also vaccinated a ton of healthcare workers. So, you know, there's not a lot of line jumping here going on. Anyway, that number, 4.4 million, that's good enough for third overall in the country behind California and Texas. It's about 700,000 vaccination doses ahead of New York. Florida has the second highest number of vaccination doses administered each day among the 50 states. They're cranking out nearly 131,000 vaccination doses a day. The next closest state is Texas with 77,000, who was hit by a snowstorm this past week, so they have drifted down a little bit. And then there is New York with 70,000, who has no excuses why they're slower than these other states. The top end of this is California. There are over 200,000. They've administered over 7 million doses. They have ridiculous numbers out there. Uh, One of of my long-standing points of why the national media is just awful in all this is that they have blasted uh, Gavin Newsom out there for having a bad vaccine rollout while praising Cuomo, when in reality, uh, Newsom has the best vaccination rollout plan in the country. They have just flat out... Vaccinated more people than any other state, and it's not even close. I mean, Florida and Texas here are both at around the 4.4, 4.5 million range. Uh, California is over 7 million, and you have New York dragging up the rear of all these mega states. So that is that is one of the things that I've hated about the national media coverage. That's that they've they've painted Gavin Newsom as being bad at this, when in reality he's been one of the best. And those early reports were saying that. It, that in, rea- that in reality, they were just having data entry problems in California. And once they got that fixed, all of a sudden, all their numbers jumped, and everything looked fine. So all the coverage of vaccines has been largely horrible. And when you look at these numbers, you look and see that Florida has the second highest numbers. When you look at the fact that they're ahead of New York... When you see that 13.4% of Floridians have had at least one dose of the vaccine and 7% have had two doses, in short, there's just not a shred of evidence in the data that NBC News' allegations have a hint of truth. No other people are being denied vaccination doses. Florida is flat out cranking out the vaccination doses left and right. And as you can see here, when you look at what they're doing, They're trying to get into more of these retirement communities and vaccinate more senior citizens because they know, as we all do, that when this virus gets into these nursing homes, it flat out can wipe it out. So we've got to protect those areas. And let's just think about this for a second. Let's say say NBC News is right in their tinfoil hat logic here. If giving vaccinations and saving lives is political and DeSantis DeSantis is saving his voters and going after these seniors, then what do we say about Andrew Cuomo? Is he purposely killing off Republican voters? Is that the implication here? This is all just really stupid, tortured logic. It makes utterly no sense. It's not backed up by a single Statistic, And you can look it up yourself. I keep a link in the show notes right now to the Bloomberg vaccination tracker, We talk since we talk about it every week. You can go look up the numbers for yourself and tell me where the vaccine bias is, because there's no proof. This was a narrative in search of a story. In reality, it was Debbie Wasserman Schultz told them something, and so they ran it as an actual news report instead of trying to back it up. And the thing about this all is that the attacks on Ron DeSantis are going to be seen for what they are. And those national media attacks are going to raise his profile in the Republican Party. His handling of COVID-19 is going to make his stock really go up with Republican voters because they're going to see him as a resounding success. I mean, even progressives are going to think that because he has schools open, you know, you have vaccinations flooding out the door, people can live their lives. I mean, they had the Super Bowl held in Florida. I saw a chart today that showed that there was no spike in COVID-19 cases in the county that hosted the Super Bowl. So all those overwrought people who were saying the Super Bowl is a mistake, we didn't have to need to have people there, we needed to put this off, they were all wrong. They are that's this Toxic pessimism that I keep bringing up when it comes to COVID 19. These people who are just toxically pessimistic about every single phase of this pandemic, and they're just flat out wrong about everything. And so, this is why I would buy stock on Ron DeSantis for 2024 as a hedge on whether or not Trump runs. DeSantis has a story, he's got a platform, and the media is going to help him sell that in their attacks on him. And so, He's going to emerge as a front-runner just because the national media hates his guts. And the more they hate his guts, the better off his chances are at succeeding in the 2024 primaries. In fact, I, it would not shock me at all. If Trump does decide to run, it wouldn't shock me if he replaced Pence with someone like DeSantis. I, I don't Even if Trump runs, I don't know if they do the same Trump-Pence ticket again. He probably replaces him to get a fresh face in there. So... Another thing to keep an eye on. So I'm going to take another break here, and then we'll return with the COVID-19 update segment up next. So I warned last weekend that the winter storm was that was going to come through could impact our numbers moving into this week. We'd already seen it in the northeast, and that it would likely happen again this week as the winter storm hammered the south. Well, that's unquestionably happened this week, and I don't know how pervasive it is, uh, but I do know that things like vaccinations and testing are down, and those should be mostly down across the south, just because of that storm. Uh, for instance, here in Tennessee, the county and even the state health departments responsible for reporting a lot of these numbers—they were just simply shut down for most of the week. We had—it it wasn't an entire state, but basically about three-fourths of the state was shut down on that front. Texas had nearly 5 million people without power, which means you're not going to have testing or vaccinations going out on that in that time span. So that, that's about a week that's gone for a lot of these areas. I mean, I, I didn't even get post office mail delivered for most of the week. We had mail on Monday, and it came back Friday or Saturday. So that, that's the kind of thing that was happening in the South. You just don't have the normal week. So it, it's official this you know, we're moving into this week, I would expect a lot of the black backlogs to be cleared. You're going to see a surge of more vaccinations going at the door. You're going to see more testing coming out. So expect sort of a normalization of things. It wouldn't surprise me if we see a dump of deaths being reported out of some of these states that weren't able to do anything for about a week. So that's all on the storm and its impacts. So all that said, I think it's official this week. The winter surge of COVID-19 is over. We're still waiting a little bit for these death numbers to catch up to the other trend lines, but when you're looking at the current debt trend lines, there is no other way to read the data that says anything else than we're outside of the surge and we're now in a lull. This is one of those in-between periods that we have in-between surge and everything is safe again, or safer than it's been. So here are the numbers. Testing has fall fallen to from one point five to one point six million to now it's around one point two five million so one and a quarter and that's in the seven day averages here because we you have to remember weekends we typically don't report as much, so you have to kind of average these things out to figure out what's happening. And again, to be expected with the winter horse storm hitting the south, we didn't have as much. And frankly, the fact that we were only fell by that much, by around 200, 250,000, 350,000, somewhere in that range, the fact that we only fell by about that much, I think, is pretty impressive. Uh, I almost expected that number to drop below a million, just given how big the storm is. So testing is down. That's not a huge concern. I would expect some of that to jump back up this week. The incredible and great news this week, and why I'm declaring the winter surge over, according to Johns Hopkins University, the percentage of positive tests coming back has fallen to pre-surge numbers at the very bottom of the scale. This week, they're saying that 4.8% of the tests coming back are positive. That is compared to the peak of that number, which was 13.5% at the beginning of January. So we have fallen from 13.5% of our tests coming back positive all the way down to 4.8%. The lowest number we hit when we had good testing was back in the early fall. And that was before the winter surge, and we had fallen to 4.1%. And it, and our numbers sort of plateaued in that 4.1% to 4.5% range, and it plateaued there before skyrocketing at the start of November. So that was the between the, the summer and the fall was sort of not, not a lot happened there, and then we surged going into the winter. So we're in a pre- or post-surge level on the positivity front, which is absolutely incredible. And since we have vaccinations now, which we didn't have after the spring or summer, but we do have them here ending in the winter, the million-dollar question is this. Can that positivity rate fall below 4%? I'm going to start watching that number in particular like a hawk because if it falls before four falls below four percent, we can definitively say at that point that vaccines are dropping a hammer on this virus. So that's the number to watch here. And if you want, you can even you can Google it and find that Johns Hopkins number. It is going to be important to watch in the coming days. Uh, the number of new cases continues falling off of a cliff. The seven-day average on new cases sits at 64,000, and it continues to fall. That is the lowest number in the averages since October 23rd. If that continues falling, like the positivity rate, that is also good news. And remember, th- these peaks, I and mean, the average is around 250,000, and we've lofted off around 200,000 off those averages. So that is a massive victory. And the number I'm watching on that front, so during the, the post-summer surge, which we hit one of our lowest ebbs, new cases on a daily basis in the average dropped to around 35,000. So I think we can look for another sign that vaccines are really working here is if they can drive those new cases below the thirty to thirty-five thousand range. So those are your two numbers there: four percent on the positivity rate, and dropping below 30, 30, 35,000. If we drop below thirty thousand, I, I really that would be fantastic news because uh, we have solid testing, and if only—I mean, if we're talking only thirty to thirty-five thousand on a national basis, if less than that is getting this virus, that is a victory of tremendous proportions. So that's where the positivity rate in the new cases numbers sit. They are great news. We're sitting at 64,000. I'd like to see that drop in half. And then the question is, can we go below it? The biggest news this week, though, is hospitalizations have fallen below the spring and summer surge numbers. Now, remember, I kept saying you needed to watch for hospitalizations to drop below about 60,000. That was where we peaked before and hospitalizations have done that. The hospitalizations peaked on January 12th, uh, where you had uh, over 131,000 people in the hospital. And right now, we only have 56,000 active hospitalizations. That is a massive drop. Almost, You, know, you have almost 80,000 people coming out of the hospital. Of course, some of that's going to be due to your increased deaths, but we've also had a lot of recoveries too. We've also had 40 straight days of falling hospitalizations. So, with hospitalizations finally dropping below that 60,000 mark, which is the peaks of the spring and the summer, we're finally falling into good territory here where we're back to where we were in a previous time. And the question is, how far can this number fall as well? Obviously, you want to see this fall all the way down. My my baseline number for this, if you want to know if if vaccines are really causing a major improvement here. Watch for them to fall below 15,000. That that would be the magic number on that front because that would be a low that we haven't hit in a very, very long time, and it would be proof that we are reducing the number of people who are getting sick from this, and that is very good. Now, the death rate has finally caught up with some of the other data points. After staying in the 3,200 range for several weeks, in the last two and a half weeks, they finally started falling Uh, Right now, the the seven-day average sits at uh, 1,890 deaths a day. It has fallen below the 2,000 death mark, and so that is a good thing. That's the first time we've been at that rate since October as well. Uh, That's still a lot of deaths. It's far too many. Uh, And and due to the winter storm, again, it wouldn't surprise me to see a spike just because some of these states could report a backlog of deaths just because their county commissioners could not have reported during that time. So those are your main baseline numbers. They are all good. Vaccines, they slowed down this week, as is to be expected, but they are continuing to move out the door in non-weather impacted areas. So the United States has administered overall a total of 63.1 million vaccines nationwide. We are averaging 1.33 million doses a day. Again, that's going to go up. I would expect that to bounce back up to 1.75 next week as all the states are doing this again. So, and 13.1% of the country has received one vaccine dose, and another 5.7% have received two doses. So, we've used approximately 84% of our vaccination supply on any given day. So, we are really pushing these doses out the door, and that is the best news of all. The higher that number goes up, the better off we are going to be. So we've also had a lot of research this week if you if you want to have if you want to jump down some fun rabbit trails I highly recommend reading through some of the stories about studies coming out of Israel regarding their vaccinations, particularly Pfizer and Israel have had a lot of success. So one of the first things that we learned this week is that there's mounting evidence that shows the Pfizer vaccine prevents transmission of the virus from person to person. So if you have the vaccine, you cannot transmit the virus, and it shows that the vaccination prevented 89.4% of transmissions from occurring. That is amazing, and that counts for both symptomatic and asymptomatic cases. So that's the first major point. So that that vaccine is really doing its job. Second, Israel has vaccinated about 30% of its country with this one. Studies of that cohort show, of that 30%, show that there's been about a 94% drop in symptomatic COVID-19 cases, and just an astonishing drop there. Pfizer and Moderna are both saying their vaccines are effective against all strains of COVID-19 except the South African variant. And on attacking that one, we may end up requiring a booster shot of some kind down the road. But, and this is the important part here, even though we know that it's not as effective, even in areas with that variant is running around, new case numbers are continuing to drop which to me, in my mind, shows that the vaccines are doing their work of dropping case numbers. So you may still be able to get this variant of the virus, but even with that, it's nowhere near as prevalent as it was. Some early research, I've seen two studies on this, says that the Pfizer vaccine, if given two weeks to build up in a certain person's system, is 93% effective against the virus. I'd like to see a few more studies on that, because if that's true then that means we can immediately double our Pfizer vaccine supply by switching to a single dose, at least for the time being. And if that's true, it could explain why we're seeing dropping case numbers because there are a lot more people who've had one dose compared to a second. So that's something to watch here. That's not Pfizer's research that's saying that. These are some third parties that are saying that, but it is peer-reviewed. It is in the New England Journal of Medicine, I'm really curious to see where they go with that. I would like to see the FDA re-examine this point, because if you could just double your supply and get neat... I mean, my my policy has switched it. I no longer want targeted on uh, seniors or any other group. I want needles and arms. I think it's fine to target the senior groups and get as many of them as vaccinated as possible. But... I think it's also good if you just get that vaccine out there because the more people that have this vaccine, the fewer people that can spread it. That is the key takeaway here. Uh, Scott Gottlieb is one of the best experts on on both this virus and just in, in you know public health in general. And he estimates that we're likely already around 40% herd immunity right now. I tend to agree with that number because when you factor in the number of people who have had a vaccine dose, which is about 63 million, along with the number of people who have had COVID-19 in some case, and you have to sort of inflate that number to account for the asymptomatic cases, you're talking at least 120 to 150 million people have probably, they have some level of immunity to this virus. And in a country that has 330, 360 million people, that is... In around the forty percent range, so I would I would say he's probably right. You're probably looking at a range of thirty to fifty percent has thirty thirty to fifty percent has some kind of immunity here, and it's just a question of where that line is. Threshold herd immunity is typically starts at around sixty percent. That is where most standard literature says. Now I know. Dr. Fauci has said, "Well, we need to get it to 80 to 90 percent. 90 percent is the range for the highly viral versions of things like smallpox, which we had to eradicate by vaccinating everyone, just because it is so it spreads so easily that you have to really get on top of it. So that's the mark for that one. Traditionally, the number is 60 percent." You can basically ignore Fauci at this point. He he's just he, he's just a flat-out liar. He repeats the pessimistic takes of the Biden administration. He basically repeats whatever the administration he's working for is in, and his his fact that he's repeating some of these just flat-out lies now, you can just safely ignore him. We are not going to mask ourselves until 2022. That is not something that's going to happen. That is not something that needs to happen. Here's what is going to happen, though. Because we are likely already around 40% with this thing, you're going to see numbers just crash here, the, the more people who are vaccinated. And the, the more that we get that number up, the more you're going to see that number crash, and the more people are just going to say, okay, well, life returns normal. And that's a good thing. And I think, you know, everyone's saying, you know, you're, we're not going to see full herd immunity until the end of the year. I disagree with that. I actually think we could hit full 75%, maybe even 80% herd immunity by the end of the summer. And it wouldn't shock me if we were even closer to that by early summer, because I think we can probably make widespread vaccinations available at most late March. But by April, I would expect you'd be able to get that, because that's the question I keep getting. When can I get a vaccine? And I know it's a tricky question because all the states are saying something different. But there is good news on that front because Bloomberg estimates that the current vaccine supply being sent out every week is going to go up greatly in the next few weeks. Pfizer, for example, is saying that they're going to double their output from 5 million doses a week to 10. So that's going to double the amount of that going out. Moderna can do the same. Yeah, you know, they've indicated in the past they can do the same. So you're probably, you know, since Pfizer was first and Moderna came a few weeks later, they they kind of trail each other on these things. So I, it wouldn't shock me to see Moderna make give out a similar letter because they want to get their vaccine doses out as well. So you're going to see the vaccine supplies double. We're sitting at around, let's say, you know, our average is one and a half million vaccine doses a day. You double the number of vaccine doses available I think you're going to see the rate double. So that's going to put us at 3 million doses a day. So that is a great number. That is right where we want to need to be. We need to be doing 3 million doses a day at a minimum. If you do that, you can vaccinate the entire country in about six months. That's about where you're sitting. And I think we can go, if we get the vaccine supply high enough, I think you can actually do even more than 3 million. So the game changer on this front, though, that has got to be the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The Biden administration has to get the FDA to grant approval for that vaccine, ASAP. That is a single-dose vaccine, and they can drop another 100 million doses on America by June. So. If Johnson & Johnson, they've also said they're ready to ship doses off the line for America starting that first week of March. They're already sending doses to places like South America, I mean not to South America, South Africa, that have ordered them. So they are ready to send these things out. It's not like we're going to be the first one and they're just now spinning up. They're already shipping out vaccination doses. The FDA needs to clear this now. They've got. They cannot delay, and I know we're coming out here towards the end of February, and this is where they're going to, you know, have their meeting. They haven't even had the meeting on when, on on proving this thing yet, uh, but they've got to do this because we can get these things rolling, and we get the Johnson and Johnson vaccination doses rolling off the first of March, and frankly, they should also approve the AstraZeneca vaccination dose because they're using it all across Europe, UK, elsewhere. We should be doing this too. We should have four out here. And I am irate that the FDA is delaying us on this front. But regardless, at a minimum, we need them to prove the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That gives us three. And you add their 100 million doses by June to the 200 million apiece for Moderna and Pfizer. And I know they've upped it. I haven't done an exact count of how many they're guaranteeing us. But I know once you combine all three of those together, the official count is that there's more vaccination doses in America than there are people. And that's by June, and so if those are all available by then, that means everyone who wants one is going to be able to get one well before June. Because not everyone is going to get one, because you're not. People who've already had it aren't are likely not going to go get it. Children aren't going to get it, and then you just have that group of the population that doesn't want a vaccine, no matter what the argument is. So you start calling out all these people. We're not going to hit a full number of people, and that's okay. That's fine, but we. Are going to have it available. That's why I tend to think it wouldn't shock me if if by the end of March, the general average person is able to get their hands on a vaccine dose. And I know people who don't fit in any of the categories listed so far, and they've been able to do that. They just kind of walked in and they were able to get one. So uh, that is where we are on that front. I think you're going to be able to get it sooner rather than later. And what you're seeing out of the Biden administration is that they are excessively pessimistic because they do not want to give people hope that this could end faster. They are terrified of raising expectations, and so they're saying, well, this is all bad. You're going to mask yourselves at the end of the year. That's what we need to plan on. And they're just wrong. These are all—I mean, this past week you had Kamala Harris going around saying that, you know, we just didn't have a vaccination rollout plan, which is a lie. That is a complete and total lie. The Biden administration has done practically nothing to improve our vaccination rollout. It was already going—the states are doing what they—all you know all these governors are taking, you know, the reins and saying, Okay, we've got vaccination doses, let's go out and do this. And you know, there was a hilarious piece in Politico this week, this past week, where it's taken you now Joe Biden was elected saying that he could come in and change the course, but he's learned that that is a very harder thing and he doesn't have as much power as he has to do things on COVID 19. It's like that was always true, that was always true, it was a lie during the campaign, and there was a reason you guys didn't cover it truly then as well. So it's all in the mess, I, all this. All this absolute nonsense from Fauci about masking into 2022, it's just dumb. Fauci should be fired at this point. I I've been I've tried to pull my punches on him because what I think he does is that he just repeats whatever the you know the line is for the administration that he's in. He typically wants he wants the pandemic over and he wants the best thing to happen. So he just repeats whatever. There are a lot better ways to get out a messaging campaign on this front. Scott Guylib is great at this. If Fauci is just the worst. He reflects the worst impulses of the public health elites who, when you see these kinds of lies, what it really says is that they don't trust America or just Americans, regular Americans. They think that they have to lie in order to get people to do what they need them to do. They're trying to manipulate public behavior into scaring them. Because when he's talking about masking till the end of 2022, what he thinks he can do is scaring people into getting a vaccine. What it really says is that even if you get a vaccine, nothing changes. And that's people are going to say, well, I don't want a vaccine. So you have these public health experts who think that they also know how to manipulate public behavior, and it is just a disaster on every level. It is, and I've referenced this in multiple things that I've written, but it's the height of elite panic. Uh, if you want to go read that piece and commentary by James Miggs, I, I highly recommend it. Just Google Elite Panic Commentary Magazine. It will come right up. He wrote it early on in the pandemic. Every word of that thing has come true when it comes towards Elite Panic. The elites in America do not trust your average American in dealing with the pandemic. But the problem is, is that the elites have been bad at, at managing this. And when you start pushing this line of, you know, the vaccine changes nothing, that is no different than an anti-vaxxer line. Because they're saying you have to keep maxing keep keep masking and doing all these things even with herd immunity, which is just dumb. And if nothing changes after a vaccine, well that's an argument against vaccines. They need to stop this stupidity. Vaccines are very clearly the way to end this, and everyone needs to go out and get one. That is the path forward. That is the carrot at the end of the stick. You need to Tell people this is what they need to do. Now, ideally, you need to tell them this. You need to tell them you get the vaccine, and then you, you do the right thing by still keep wearing a mask and stuff, by giving it that time to build up in your system. Because all these people who get the virus after getting a vaccine, they get it very early on. It's that first one to two weeks, typically. And you have to give your body the time to build up immunity to the vaccine dose you've been given. That takes time that's why the study that looked at Pfizer after 2 weeks showed that they didn't have you know cases dropped by 93 94% after those 2 weeks so you have to give your body that time the same is true with the Johnson and Johnson i know people were you know they pointed to that that it's only 66% or 75% effective and that's also not true that's also looking at that first time period here the jo- the Johnson and Johnson vaccine after 2 months they didn't find any cases at all and after about a month they saw closer to the 90 to 95% range as the others. It just took a little bit longer to work into the system, and that's fine. It's a different type of vaccine. It is based on a weakened version of COVID-19. Pfizer and Moderna are based on mRNA. We haven't used those before at a mass scale like this, so we're learning a lot about them. And trust me, that is fascinating technology, and it's going to be used a lot more in the future. So vaccines are the way out of this. There's light at the end of the tunnel, and I really wish public health elites would reflect that that knowledge that we have, because this is the statistics are bearing this out, the numbers are bearing out, that if we can double our numbers here, if we can get another vaccine dose on the market, we can have this thing licked by summer. That is the hope that people need to have. So that's all for the podcast this week. This week's light item is brought to you by the saxophone. And the saxophone put in places where you didn't expect it. Now, if you've listened to any 80s music, you know they love them a really good saxophone solo. Bill Clinton even used this to come to his popularity, going on the Arsenio Hall talk show and playing the saxophone. Well, there's this one enterprising guy on TikTok. His name's Evan Jacobson, and he is starting redoing just some random songs from you know different eras and throwing in a saxophone solo right from that er- that era, the 80s, early 90s era. And the one that that went viral this past week was his solo over Biggie's song, Big Papa. So we're only going to focus in on the solo here, but if you want to listen to it, I've linked the full song on YouTube if you need more of these saxophone solos. So make sure to go check out Evan Jacobson. Give him a follow on social media. If you're on TikTok, give him a follow there because this stuff is pretty awesome. So here you go, a saxophone solo. You gotta come up in your waist, please don't shoot up the place Cause I see some ladies tonight that should be having my baby Baby there you go a saxophone solo over a rap song pretty cool stuff make sure you go check out evan jacobson that's all i've got for today's show questions comments corrections or feedback you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on twitter at dvonci look for my next columns on monday and friday at the conservative institute and the newsletter goes out early friday morning so make sure you sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews or share the podcast to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.